Well, great to see you folks, um, a small number who are with us uh, today and hopefully many more who are uh, out there uh, in your homes uh, via YouTube. Here we are again in tier four uh, and you know, what can a man in my position say at this moment other than I wish I'd visited the barbers before it shut? Uh, for the next three weeks. Um, three weeks' time, this could be... It's just, however bad you think my hair looks now, just imagine how bad it's going to look in three weeks. Um, uh, but here we are, once again. Uh, this is the third time that I have had the privilege of, of speaking uh, in this kind of tumultuous year. And it's the third time on, in a row that um, I've been speaking on the subject of prayer. Um, and uh, so probably it's no accident that um, as the year comes to a close, this is definitely the thing that God has been speaking to me most about this year. And I find that actually that's a common theme when I talk to other people at a safe distance, of course. Um, this is often the thing that comes up. Other people are finding this too, that, that God in the midst of this year has been speaking to them at prayer, about prayer and perhaps this year they've prayed more than they have in any previous year of their lives. Now, if that is true, that is actually a source of extraordinary hope and encouragement uh, for many of us. Uh, and, and I think it is something that we can genuinely uh, be hopeful about. But uh, here we are. In Ephesians chapter 6 uh, today, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 18 to 20, but um, in the ESV translation at least, uh, verse 18 is kind of halfway through Paul's sentence. So I think it's probably sensible to read from verse 10 all the way to verse 20, just so we can get the context of where he's going in this concluding chapter to his great letter. So if you, if you have uh, a Bible with you, or even if you don't, um, I'm going to read from uh, verse 10 to verse 20 in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit 
with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So today, we are looking at quite a, a well-known passage of Scripture, which is uh, generally referred to as the armor of God. But I want us to think about a couple of questions as we do this. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Today, I want you to think about this. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? What indeed does a strong person look like? And this is a particularly pointed question, of course, as we face further restrictions, separations, and difficulties in this season. But actually, this is always an issue because difficulties are always present in life. Tom Wright, probably the greatest living theologian, certainly in Britain, uh, speaking in March this year at the outbreak of the pandemic, said that moments like this are actually much more common and much more normal in human history than we realize. And it's only relatively recently in our kind of post-enlightenment um, kind of idea of straight line of progress right um, to, to kind of eternal happiness, uh, it's only recently in that kind of worldview that we've lost sight of the idea that life almost inevitably must be filled with challenges. But such thinking is actually utterly foreign to the New Testament, although it has and does creep into the church at times. Jesus could not have been clearer on this. In this world, he says in John's gospel, in this world, that's the world we're all living in, you will have trouble. This is not fatalism. Who uh, in the history of the world has ever expected the miraculous inbreaking of the kingdom of God more than Jesus? This is not fatalism to say that in this world we will have trouble. It's not to say that, we, that, that you lack faith to imagine that in this world we will have trouble. Rather, it is to accept the reality that we live in a fallen world and that we stand in the place, or at least we should stand in the place, where the kingdom of God confronts the kingdoms of this world. In this world, you will have trouble. But, one of the great buts of Scripture, but take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. This is a hugely significant verse for us because what Jesus is saying is that his life has the power to overwhelm 
the trouble around us and to become our source of strength. That his achievements on the cross are a greater reality than the suffering and difficulty that we see around us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that today? Do you think that's true? Really, Paul's uh, letter at this point in the Ephesians, in the, to the Ephesians is answering this que- asking and answering this question, how do we live in such a way as to live in the strength of Jesus' achievements on our behalf? If he has overcome this world, and we are to take heart in that fact, then how is it that we live in the strength of his achievements? Surely that is what it means to be strong in the Lord. Well, Ephesians 6 is a list of uh, armor metaphors. And Paul says, if you put on this armor, then you will be strong for the battle. You don't want to go out into the battle, you know, in your jeans and a t-shirt. That's not going to help you. What you need to do, he says, is put on the armor. And he lists six things. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Six pieces of armor. And then, at the end, he mentions prayer. Now, some commentators, when you read them, argue that prayer is really the seventh piece of armor set alongside all the others. But it seems to me unlikely that that interpretation is actually true. Because surely Paul would have just attached another metaphor to prayer. It seems to me and to many others, you believe, this is not uh, my own, simply my own view, that prayer is actually something even more vital. In Hebrew thinking, seven is the number of completion. God created the world six days, and on the seventh, he rested. And seven has that sense of fullness and completion. In other words, what Paul, I think, is telling us is that prayer is the thing that makes all the other pieces of armor in that list effective in our lived experience. Here's what it comes down to. Great, and I should add, in a way that it is literally impossible to overstate. Great, that truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, great though these things are, and as I say, great in the sense that it is impossible to overstate how great they are, These things alone are not enough. Salvation, you see, 
is dynamic and relational rather than automatic or maybe even magical. It is a dynamic relationship with your Savior. It is possible to be theologically sound and yet spiritually dead. We must have the Spirit. In fact, the ultimate test of theology is the priority that we have in our lives for prayer. If all my knowledge of God does not lead me to desire to commune with Him, to know Him intimately in the secret place of my heart, then what is the point of it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher from the last century, says this very clearly. We are utterly dependent upon God and upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must realize that if we don't maintain a constant communion with him, whatever we may have done in putting on the armor will avail us nothing. It's interesting in these verses that the word all is repeated no fewer than four times in the Greek and I think four times in the ESV translation as well. And in each case, this word all suggests an all-encompassing concern. All in the sense of praying in a person's whole lifetime, in all their years, in all their days, in all their minutes, in all their seconds, all of their life. All in the sense that the whole of the whole range of prayer, all types of prayer, public prayer and private prayer, the desperate cry for help, or mercy when you're at the absolute end of yourself. All kinds of prayer. All in the sense of the whole mental, emotional, physical range of personal existence. All that a person can feel or experience brought before God in prayer. Nothing too angry, nothing too dejected, nothing too joyful that it is excluded from that place of prayer. Just read the Psalms and you'll see it. And finally, all in the sense of the whole community, the whole church, particularly prayer for its weakest members. The repetition of these four alls leads Marcus Bart to this conclusion. Nothing less is suggested in these verses than that the life and strife of the people of the saints should be one great prayer to God. 
that this prayer be offered in ever new forms, however good or bad the circumstances, and that this prayer not be self-centered, but express the need and the hope of all the saints. I love that. That all of our lives should be, in effect, a prayer to God. It sounds like a wonderful thing, but maybe you, like me, are thinking, what on earth does that mean practically? What does that actually look like in my life to make my life one prayer to God? Well, I don't have all the answers. I think that should be clear by now. But I am, I do feel on a journey to try to discover some of the answers to that question. And I think one of the places, or maybe the place that we have to begin is that the goal of our lives must be to some extent to live in a constant awareness of his presence. The central promise of the great, central to the promise, sorry, of the great commission is, and, and actually something that the church will not be able to fulfill the, the calling of the Great Commission without, is Jesus' promise to us, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is your reality. This is, my, this is our reality that Jesus has committed himself to being with us always, in every moment of every day. This is the reality. We are not trying to persuade ourselves or convince ourselves that this is true. We are trying to conform our awareness to this truth. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is with you at all times, in every moment of your day? I think we need to meditate deeply on passages like Romans 8, which is often called life in the Spirit. I encourage you to do that in your own time. Or all the practical measures that I'm about to mention can quickly become dead religion. Verse 1, for example, of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Do you know that in your hundred mistakes? Do you know that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus? I submit to you that if you don't, if you don't have that robustly in your heart, then that constant awareness of his presence will be difficult to experience. You constantly be thinking that there's a wall between you and him and what he is saying 
is in, and, and this is also in Romans 8, that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, again Romans 8, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, term of intimacy. Do you know him as your father? Do you know him in that intimate, emotional place in your life? I think it's essential to know his presence with you always, to know his affections are warm towards you. But if we believe these things, how do we make them a reality in our lives? In other words, how do we do Romans chapter 8, verse 5? Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. How do we live with our minds set on the things of the Spirit? Well, here are just a few practical tips that I'm trying to apply in my own life. And the first is this. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Mother Teresa's habit when she opened her eyes every morning was that the first words that came out of her mouth were, good morning, Jesus. Starting your day with an awareness of his presence, I find immensely valuable and helpful. And when I don't, I feel the difference. John Bunyan said, he who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him in the rest of the day. I tell my classes at school that the first scene in a play is disproportionately important because it has the power to set the tone for the rest of the play, to establish the world in which the action will take place. This is also true for the first hour of our day. It has a tone-setting power in our lives. And I think that is one practical way that you can increase that sense that God is with you and that your life is lived in his presence. Prayer, though I think, should be saturated with thanksgiving. George Mueller, who knew more about prayer than almost anyone, I dare say, He said this, reflecting upon uh, years of his prayer life that he didn't feel was particularly fruitful. He said, I never came, oh, sorry, actually, this this is what he learned in these unfruitful years before um, he came to a place where he really felt as though um, he managed to find God successfully in prayer. He said, I never came 
to my requests and petitions before I had an active awareness of the presence of God. I never came to my requests and petitions before I had an active awareness of the presence of God. So in our prayer lives, that means stopping before the requests, before asking for the petitions, for the, for the things that are on our heart, and adoring, bringing our thanksgiving, bringing our joy, bringing our love and devotion to God, becoming aware of his love, of his nearness, of the way he cares for us, of the way he provides for us, holding these things foremost in our mind, that being the priority before anything else, is getting yourself in that place of joy before God. If that's all we achieve in prayer each day, I dare say that's enough to be getting on with. And once, once we do that, then we begin to see that all of our lives, and this is how the Bible talks about it, all of our lives are opportunities to encounter God. When we serve others, that beautiful section in Matthew 25. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, you can see Jesus in the people that you meet day to day, in your neighbors, in your family, in your children. Life is not going to get uh, less busy for some of us. Circumstances are not easily changed. But the miracle of what Jesus has done is that he comes into where we are in our circumstances and encounters us in the midst of them. Work, the Bible speaks of. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work becomes a time for encountering God, for being aware of his presence. As you're sitting doing the humdrum things of your everyday life. In Colossians, Paul says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, another all word, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How do we make our lives a prayer to God? We understand that everything we do, everything that we do, can be done in his name, in 
giving thanks to God. Next, praying in tongues. Romans 8 says this, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when we don't know what to pray as we ought, the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And Paul writing to the Corinthians says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. That speaking in tongues is a way of accessing the strength of God in our weakness. We don't know what to pray. You can speak out in the Spirit, and it can strengthen you. And another suggestion, fasting. When we fast, we very quickly become aware of our own frailty. We become aware in an immediate sense of the fact that we are dependent creatures. That, that, that actually it becomes harder to maintain that sense that, that we are self-sufficient and that we have it all together and we can do things in our own strength. Just miss a couple of meals and you realize that actually you need him. You become aware of him at work in your life. Prayer is more than a lighted candle. The theologian George Buttrick said, it is the contagion of health. It is the pulse of life. Life in all its fullness is accessible through prayer. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, and therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake, Though we go back into tier four lockdown and we're worried about not seeing our families at Christmas, though our kids are going slightly mental, locked up in the house all day because the weather's rubbish and they can't see their pals, we will not fear. For God is our refuge and our strength. You know, I was, I was praying um, just before I came to speak, I felt God, I was asking God, what is it that you want to do today? And just as I'm finishing and Andy's coming back, I felt him direct me to these verses in Philippians that Paul uh, wrote to believers while he was in prison. And his circumstances were dreadful by any measure. And yet we find him saying this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The 
Lord is close. He is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I felt God say that today what he wanted was to communicate peace. Peace to you. The peace of God which surpasses understanding. So many different situations will be represented by the people watching this video. Circumstances that, frankly, I know nothing about and many of which I am powerless to do anything about. But God is at hand. He is near to you. He is standing alongside you. Let, let your requests with thanksgiving be known to him. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are with us and that you have promised never to leave us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I pray right now, Lord, for everyone hearing my voice, Lord, that they would experience something of your peace in their life, that it would, be, it would be a tangible, experiential reality in their life and that they would find themselves being strengthened in the power of your might as you come to them, Holy Spirit, and fill them again. Love you, Jesus rejoice in you. We thank you, God, for your care for us and for your sovereign hand.